Today we dive into Luke chapter 14, so I hope you have a Bible that you can use or an electronic device that has God's Word on it that you can find your way over to Luke chapter 14, and we will be picking up at the very beginning of that chapter here today as I share with you a message that I've titled, Habits of Humility from a Savior Who Stoops Low. Now, back in high school, I used to play football, and I believe I've mentioned that to all of you before. But when I played, I was a pretty slim guy. Uh, As a matter of fact, in those days, I believe I was probably about 50 pounds less than I am right now. And my wife was kind enough to remind me of that distinction as we went out this past week. We went went for uh, ice cream with the family on Saturday, and uh, as I was there, she came up and tugged on my shirt. I was wearing my, you know, nice new vision, love my neighbor's shirt that so many of you have, and she, she tugged on the back of my shirt and looked at that label and said, I was just making sure you weren't wearing my shirt. <laughs> so, anyhow, sometimes life brings those changes, right? So we're there eating ice cream, and it's a reminder to me of how much uh, less I weighed back in those days when I played football, but here's the interesting fact. I played offensive line. Now, if you know much of anything about football, you know that offensive line tends to be where you put the hefty guys. I mean, the heaviest guys on the team are typically going to be your offensive linemen because it's their job to keep the defenders from getting back to the quarterback and also to open up lanes so that the running backs can run down the field. And you can imagine with individuals pushing through on the other side, having a bigger body, a heftier weight, would be something that would allow you in those circumstances to do a better job of holding individuals back. Well, I played for South Stokes, and I played in the midst of several seasons of losing records for that team. And so we didn't have the luxury of following some of football's best practices, including having the hefty guys on the offensive line. But still, my coaches drove home an important message both to me and to the other guys who were lining up against the defense and hoping to win that battle at the line of scrimmage. The lesson that they reiterated to us over and over and over again was this. Go low. That is, if you're striving to block a defender who's trying to get behind you the lower you can go the more leverage you're going to have to keep that individual from making progress across the line so my only chance of really having success as a scrawny lineman was to stay low now i think if we were going to summarize the lesson that jesus gives to us in the passage that we're going to look at here today, we could summarize it with those same words that my coaches barked out now 20 years ago. Go low. Because no matter how big we may think we're getting in life, Jesus encourages us to go low. No matter what titles we may bear in the workplace or in the home, in the community, No no matter how much money we may have in the bank, Jesus teaches us to go low. 
No matter how many people know who we are or how many places we may have traveled or how many things we may have accomplished, the consistent message that the Lord Jesus Christ gives us is to go low. And that's the message that Jesus himself exemplified. Because Jesus was God in the flesh. No other person could ever come close to that title. No one else could claim that sort of renown from a humanly perspective and yet jesus chose to go low he stooped low in order to enter our world and to fellowship with our kind so that he might help and serve and save those who were way below him in the grand scheme of things but who had a sincere need that he earnestly desired to meet out of his love for us so jesus teaches what he models and the message from his mouth that we find in this passage could be summarized as go low that's why i've titled today's message habits of humility from a savior who stoops low because in today's passage we're going to see that jesus commands us to follow his example And you'll never find a better example of humility than what we find in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we talk about humility in a biblical sense, we're not talking about resolving to see ourselves as worthless pieces of trash. A lot of people, a lot of times you hear people talk about humility and that's kind of what they have in mind. Like, I need to resolve to understand that I am nothing. I'm just a piece of trash. No, Jesus' kindness toward toward us and his efforts to save us show us that we are not pieces of trash. He shows us that we have great value in a kingdom perspective. But from a Christian perspective, humility is the honest view of ourselves that we attain when we compare ourselves not with everyone else, but ultimately with the example that, that God has set forward before us in Christ. When we compare ourselves to Christ, we attain a a proper sort of humility. When we gaze at the holiness of Christ, we realize our own sinfulness, not how many good deeds we've done. When we gaze at the power of Christ, we recognize our own powerlessness, no matter how many accomplishments we may have accomplished. When we look to the perfection and the power and the glory which are due to Christ, but then recognize that he still stooped low on our behalf, all of our vain perceptions that we are deserving of self-promotion are are crumbled before him. And so we acknowledge our limitations and we recognize that whatever gifts and strengths we might have ought to ultimately be yielded to Christ as he directs because they are ultimately all from him. So humility for the Christian is a realistic assessment of who we are and a commitment to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and others that he himself has a heart to serve. And that's what Jesus compels us to do when we come into Luke chapter 14. Verses 1 through 14. He compels us to help the hurting and to associate with the anonymous and to serve the suffering because doing so echoes the very heart of God which was so richly on display in the life of Christ. So join me now in Luke chapter 14 starting in verse 
1. If you're able, I'd ask that you would stand and we might honor together the reading of God's Word. Luke 14, beginning in verse 1, it happened that when he, that is Jesus, went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this man, and then in disgrace you will proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Luke begins this chapter by really setting the stage for what's about to happen. And what's about to happen is this kind of series of things dealing with a meal, dealing with this invitation that Jesus has received. In fact, Jesus has been invited to a meal in the home of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath day. Those are some important factors there. It's, it's one of the leaders of the Pharisees. It's on the Sabbath day, these circumstances that kind of bring things together. Jesus has accepted the invitation. And so he's now, he has gone in to this house to share in this meal. Now the Sabbath was one of the Ten Commandments that God gave to the nation of Israel, which required that one particular day every week, the Sabbath day was to be set aside as a day of rest and a day of restoration and a day of worship. It was designed by God to be a blessing in that individuals were not to do any work on that day. It, it freed them up from work on that day and allowed them to focus on him, allowed them to find true rest, allowed them to be recharged and re-energized. Ultimately, the, the, the Sabbath, we would find, would be 
something that was leading forward. It was pointing individuals to the ultimate fulfillment that we find in Christ and that he is the ultimate Sabbath. He is the ultimate rest that we need. When we talk about Jesus in light of the Sabbath, Jesus has come and said, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Jesus came and he provided the ultimate Sabbath that we needed, a rest from our labors, a rest from our attempts to save ourselves, a rest from all that we might strive to do if we thought that we could earn God's favor because God has provided that favor in ways we could never attain through Christ. He is the ultimate fulfillment of the Sabbath. And that was meant to be a blessing for the people, this day of rest, this day of worship. But the Pharisees, the ones who are hosting this meal, had taken this day of blessing and they had turned it into a day of torture for the people of Israel. Coming out of the Babylonian captivity, the Pharisees, this religious sect of Judaism, had added all sorts of requirements and provisions that had to be kept if an individual was going to consider him or herself to be appropriately observing the Sabbath day. Therefore, the, the Pharisees had kind of set themselves up as the guardians of holiness. They'd set themselves up as the police, especially of the Sabbath day. And so if individuals did not do the, the million things that they had written out as, as their interpretations of how the Sabbath was to be observed, then they would condemn those individuals. They would point their long fingers and accuse those individuals. You're not living holy before God. You are not living according to his plans. And these Pharisees were a popular group among the Jewish people of Jesus' day. So their rituals and their regulations, they were held in very high esteem. But as you might imagine, all the people were being crushed under the load of trying to bear these regulations out. They were so judgmental. Jesus spoke about them, as we saw earlier in Luke, as, as those who would clean the outside of the cup, but the inside was still filthy. They were putting on a good show before others, saying, look at the holiness that I'm able to carry out through these obligations. And the reality was their hearts were putrid. Their hearts were foul. And so Jesus was often found in confrontation with these individuals. And since no work was to be done on the Sabbath day, when we talk about the sort of meals that the Jews would eat on the Sabbath day, those were meals that they typically would have prepared the day before. And the meal that Jesus gathers together to enjoy in the home of one of these leaders of the Pharisees here on the Sabbath day, along with the lawyers and other Pharisees, was likely the Sabbath meal. The Sabbath meal was a meal that took place after the morning meeting in the synagogue. Much like any of you, many of you today, once you're done with the service here, will go out to lunch with friends or family. It's that same sort of lunch that the Jews would gather together in their homes to enjoy as they gathered after the synagogue worship time. And Jesus had already shared some other meals with the Pharisees. We saw one of those uh, back in Luke chapter 7 when this woman came to him as he reclined at the table and she began to wash his feet with her tears in this moment of remorse. She anointed his feet with oil as this sign of worship. And the Pharisees 
criticized him and said, if he only knew what sort of woman this is who now gathers at his feet. And Jesus knew what kind of woman she was. But Jesus had come for women like that. Jesus has come for people like you and like me. People who are wretched in our sin. People who recognize that we can't do things on our own. And so that was one confrontation that happened in a very similar sort of circumstance at a Pharisee's house over a meal. And then in Luke chapter 11, we see something similar. In that there's Jesus gathering together with a Pharisee. This time the Pharisee is accusing Jesus, or he's really ultimately surprised. He's shocked at Jesus, that Jesus does not ceremonially wash his hands before the meal. That's where Jesus gives that accusation that the Pharisees clean the outside of the cup, but not the inside. And so these are confrontational sorts of gatherings with individuals, yet this Pharisee decides he's going to invite Jesus all the same. And even though this high legalism, this this high condemnation of the Pharisees against their fellow Jews caused them to be some of Jesus' chief opponents during his earthly ministry, Jesus still took the time to engage and to instruct and to offer life. To the Pharisees. In fact, today's miracle is the final of six miracles that Jesus performed in Luke's gospel on the Sabbath day. And as Jesus performed these miracles, the Pharisees were not happy with his upending of their traditions or the policies that they were trying to enforce in Israel. But it's as if Jesus offers the Pharisees yet another opportunity, yet one more chance that they might ditch their traditions and ditch their comfort zones in order that they might find eternal hope in Him. We talked last week about how our God is a God of second chances. We see this so rich, even with His chief opponents here on earth. Jesus is offering out a lifeline. He's, He's healing once again on the Sabbath. Once again, will you acknowledge that I have the right to to carry out this work in this place as my role as your Messiah. Still, they were not willing. In fact, by this point, they're on a mission to trap Jesus in something he might say. And for that reason, we can't help but wonder if one of the guests who is at this meal was actually a plant there by the Pharisees. Because they were ultimately striving to cause Jesus to do something that they could hold against him. But as we've already seen in this text, Jesus turns the tables and he calls for the Pharisees to re-examine their priorities. So likewise, as we look to these words and these deeds of Jesus, each of us ought to re-examine our priorities. Are you living with habits of humility that would ultimately honor God? Jesus shows us how to do that here in Luke chapter 14 with three habits of humility from a Savior who stoops low that I want to draw out for you here. Here's the first one. Habit number one is help the hurting. Help the hurting. That's what Jesus does here in verses 1 through 6. You know, Jesus could have chosen a different approach that might have won him more fanfare, that might have prevented his forthcoming death on the cross. But Jesus refused to take the easy way. So when a man who is hurting appears before him in verse 6, Jesus ultimately helps that man by healing him of his malady. 
Now, the man who appears here is described in verse 2 as a man suffering from dropsy. I don't know about you guys, but I haven't heard of a lot of people suffering from dropsy. Probably not something you've heard much about. If we did hear about it, we'd probably think like there was a toddler somewhere who was, you know, constantly dropping their toys or something. But that's not what we're talking about here. Dropsy is actually a word that's used to describe a condition wherein an individual accumulated excess fluid in his or her body. The Greek word for this condition literally means water face. As an individual with this condition would often swell up in the face. And dropsy wasn't in itself an illness, but it was rather the result of some other illness which was happening in an individual's bodies. For example, kidney failure might be something that would cause an individual to take on dropsy as their body would fill up with fluids and they would begin to swell. Now, the Pharisees were the sorts of folks who typically looked down on individuals who were suffering. We find them in the scriptures assuming that the maladies which individuals face are as a result of their sin in contrast to what they perceived as their own holiness. So they weren't likely to have a man suffering in this sort of way over for a dinner unless they were trying to set Jesus up in order that they might see him violate their rules so that they could accuse him before the people of working against God. And so as we read at the end of verse 1, they were watching Jesus closely. They're watching for an opportunity to accuse him. And friends, if you called upon Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can be sure of this fact. Other people are watching you closely. When you live your life as a Christian, you can be sure that those who are lost are inspecting your life to see what sort of evidence Christ has made in you. And for some people, you may be the only Bible that they will ever read. You may be the only testimony of God's love that they will ever hear. And so I ask those of you who are Christians, what sort of testimony are you living out? What sort of hope are those who are watching you closely going to find? Does your life echo the love and the grace that you found in Christ? Jesus sees value in every man, woman, boy, and girl. They all bear his image. Jesus doesn't look at this individual suffering from dropsy in the dining room and say, this man has no value because he is sick. He does not say, this man has no value because he is a sinner. No, Jesus found him before, found before him a man created in his image, suffering with a disease. This was a hurting man. And Jesus wasn't going to go on and enjoy his meal without making a difference in this hurting man's life while he had the opportunity to do so. In fact, this crippled man with dropsy, this societal outcast who would have been mocked and scorned and steered away from by parents and others in Jesus' day, this man appeared before Jesus. And rather than being found wanting, he was found wanted by the Savior. Jesus wanted to help this man in his helpless state. Jesus wanted to bring relief to his suffering. 
And though this man may have been rejected by everyone else, he found the highest place of honor as he was allowed to appear before God in the flesh. And friends, that's a hopeful message for all of us. Because all of us could say the same sorts of things. That we are sick. That we are devastated by the offenses that we have caused against God. And yet, His desire is not to cast us away. His desire is not to hurt. His desire is to heal. And so we rejoice in the hope of the gospel that says Jesus has come for those who were helpless, those who were hurting, those like you and like me who needed his grace if we were going to be restored to God. But Jesus also knew here in this passage that the Pharisees needed a lesson. He knew that they still thought it was wrong for a man like this to be healed on a day when they felt like they were being so holy and everyone else should be holy like them by refusing to work. So Jesus spoke to these lawyers and these Pharisees in verse 3 saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He's putting the question to them. He's putting them in the hot seat by asking them this question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And if there was any group that ought to be able to answer that question in this day, in this area where Jesus was, it was these people, the Pharisees and the scribes. These were the people who knew the law of God. These were the ones who poured themselves into studying the Scriptures. And yet when Jesus asks them this question, they keep silent. Why would they keep silent? Well, Jesus was calling out their hypocrisy. Jesus puts these experts in a self, in this, in this self-appointed sort of police role over the law. He, he puts them into a bind. If they said that a work of healing was permitted on this day, then they would be losing out on an opportunity to accuse him, an opportunity they'd probably set up here in this moment. And they would be confessing that their traditions were not founded upon the word of God. But if they said that it was wrong to heal on the Sabbath, well, then they risked the danger of losing favor with the people by seeming to be uncaring about this man and his plight. So they chose option C, to remain silent, stuck in the gap between self-righteousness and popularity. And we should be clear that there was no God-mandated command that healing should not be performed on the Sabbath. While there was a God-given command not to work on that day, there was no stipulation that one was to be merciless and to refuse to perform an emergency rescue if the circumstances of that day should require it. These Pharisees should have realized that with God, a day of rest can still be a day of rescue. And I say the same thing to you. A day of rest can still be a day of rescue. Maybe you're gathered here and this is your day of rest. This this is your weekend. This is your chance to get out and relax and not go into the workplace. Well, I tell you, a day of rest can still be a day of rescue. And I would encourage you to open your ears, open your hearts to hear what the Savior has to say as he invites you to come and to receive life. Because for you too, a day of rest can be a day of rescue. But the Pharisees didn't want to heal. They wanted to capitalize on suffering. 
And so they were too busy looking down on this man to see the face of God there in their midst. I mean, here was Christ before their eyes, but they were too busy looking for an opportunity to elevate themselves so that they did not see him. And you know, it's hard to see the face of God when you're looking down on others. And friend, I just ask you, do you find yourself looking down on others? Do you say things, either out loud or to yourself, like, if only you hadn't fooled around. If only you hadn't done what I told you not to do. If only you hadn't been so stupid, then you wouldn't be in such a mess. As you go about your merry way, refusing to help someone who it is within your power to help. Let me me just say this. Gossip is a tell-all sort of indicator of a refusal to help the hurting. Those who gossip seek to disseminate information that ultimately looks down on the mistakes of others. Gossip looks to the one who is wallowing in a bad decision and says, I'm going to use that to elevate myself in my conversation with someone else. And if you're the sort of person who is prone to talk about the problems of others who are struggling without lending a hand to help them in their need, then you are missing the heart of Christ. Ditch that habit and help the helpless. Because Jesus shows us that we have a moral obligation to help our fellow man. Climbing the ladder to look down on our neighbor who is suffering through some circumstance that we could help with will not suffice. And whatever tribe you run with, if that tribe says that you shouldn't help someone who is different than you, someone who comes from a different background or a different nation or of a different race, if whatever tribe you run with says you shouldn't help someone different than you with a real need, then you need another tribe because that's the tribe of a Pharisee. And Jesus showed that when there appears to be a conflict between what God commands and what is the loving thing to do, there really is no conflict at all. Because our God is a God of love. And if he commands us to do something, it is for our own good. And when Jesus has shown true love, when he has helped this hurting man, he follows up by asking a rhetorical question. In verse 5, he says, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? Now, though the Pharisees didn't answer him, we know that what their answer would have been, all of them would have pulled their son, their legacy, the one they'd invested in, the one that they loved so much, all of them would have pulled their son out of that well, out of that pit. All of them would have pulled their ox, that mighty instrument of their financial gain, that one that caused their crops to thrive, that one that they had invested so much money in. All of them would have pulled that ox out of the ditch on the Sabbath day. As we saw in Luke chapter 13, verse 15, each of them on the Sabbath would untie his ox or his donkey and lead him from the stall to water him. In Israel, in Jesus' day, there were many wells that had been dug to find water, which were then left uncovered. And you know what happens when you walk by a well that's uncovered? Well, there's a danger that you might fall into that well. Okay, well, what happens to an individual or an ox that falls into a well? 
Well, ultimately, if there's not someone there to rescue you, if there's not someone there to pull you out of that well, you may be able to swim for a little while, but you're not going to swim your way up the wall of a well. And so what will eventually happen is exhaustion and drowning. Well, Jesus makes that sort of experience personal because he shows us the same heart that we have for our children, the same heart that we have for our financial stability, the heart that's wrapped up in the sun that falls in the well, the heart that's wrapped up in the ox that falls in the well is ultimately the same sort of heart that God has for those who are hurting around us. In fact, here was a man with dropsy who was in a sense drowning in his own bodily fluids. And yet the Pharisees were unwilling to see him rescued. And oh, friends, how many people do you know who are drowning in their sorrows? Drowning in their regrets? Drowning in their bad decisions? Drowning in an effort to save themselves? Will you cast them the rope of the gospel? Will you go down to their level to pull them up? No matter the consequences, no matter the cost, will you share the hope of the only one who can save with those who are in desperate need? Because the heart of Christ is that the hurting would be helped. And so I compel you, Do what true humility requires. Line up your life next to Jesus to find what is lacking. Look to Jesus and ask, am I too holy to help the hurting? Because there never has been another one who is as holy as Jesus. He's the only man who's ever lived with sinless perfection. And yet he stooped so low that he was willing to rescue a nobody from nowhere suffering with a gruesome condition from his hurting state. Help the hurting. That's the first habit of humility from a Savior who stoops low. Here's the second one. Habit number two, associating with the anonymous. Associate with the anonymous. That's the message Jesus drives home in this parable which he speaks about beginning in verse 7. He was watching the people That is, he was observing these individuals who are gathering with him to share in this meal in the Pharisee's home as they come into the Pharisee's house and as they're selecting the place where they're going to sit for the meal. Now, the people who had been invited were choosing their seats by what would ultimately grant them the most honor. They'd been picking out the places of honor at the tables, according to verse 7, And the places that honor at a meal, as you might imagine, would generally be those places that would be closest to the host, the one who had invited them, the one who was holding the banquet, the one whose property this was. And so sitting near the host, sitting at the prominent place would be a way of saying, hey, look at me. Look at how important I am. Look at how much the host who's able to host this great banquet thinks of me and that he would have me sitting close to him. I'm his favorite And yet Jesus wants to teach us all a lesson of humility for those circumstances where we want to show other people how important we are. So Jesus in this parable tells the people how they should choose their seats at a wedding feast. 
Now, this wasn't a wedding feast that he was at at this moment, but a wedding feast would have been like one of the most important sort of social occasions in Jewish life. So Jesus is ultimately taking it up a level. He's taking it to the extreme where he says, even at a wedding feast, according to verse 8, do not take the place of honor. Now, weddings were huge deals to the Jews. And where you sat in a wedding feast ultimately revealed what your status was within the whole community because the whole community would be gathered for this feast. But Jesus says, don't take the place of honor there. Why? For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by the host, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man, and then in disgrace you will proceed to occupy the last place. That is, the danger of taking a high place at a wedding feast is learning that you weren't as important as you probably thought you were. And in that situation, even though you were seeking to kind of gain the honor, gain the acclaim of others who had gathered at that feast by choosing the place where you sat, what you'll ultimately find is that you are disgraced before those same people that you were seeking to bring acclaim from. Now, a few years ago, Amy and I and a few members of our family were invited to a wedding of one of her childhood friends. And we went to that wedding. It was at a local church. And after the ceremony, everyone from the wedding proceeded over to the fellowship hall for a reception. Well, the wedding party, as wedding parties often tend to be, they were very busy taking the photos after the, after the wedding service. And so... Everyone kind of gathered into this place where the tables were already set and they had, you know, some hors d'oeuvres, hors d'oeuvres that were prepared there that would ultimately be for anyone who wanted to basically just abide in the time when the wedding party was wrapping up their preparations to come and join the rest of the group. So, you know, we got a plate. We proceeded to sit down at a table that was, you know, kind of near the middle of the room on the way in. And we were really just enjoying ourselves and having a grand old time at this wedding. We didn't think much about it until the wedding party was about to enter. But that's when someone, who I presume was the wedding director, came to our table and said to us, You can't sit here. This table is reserved for the wedding party. So you can imagine our excitement in this moment. I mean, we had no idea. We looked around, though, and sure enough, there on the other side of the table, there was a small card that said, reserved for wedding party. Well, we had already used the plates and the utensils at this table. I believe one of our kids had probably spilled one or two items on the tablecloth. By this time, the fellowship hall was packed. Now, I don't need to tell you what our emotions were in that moment, but I will tell you, we were embarrassed. We were ashamed. We had made a big mistake. We had taken the place of honor. And we scurried away, as you might imagine, just as quickly as we could to find some other place where we could stand. And by this time, the place was so full that the only place left to gather and the only place to enjoy your meal would be along the walls in this fellowship hall. There were no more seats. We were left to stand along the wall in shame. 
And oh, how that experience comes to my mind and rings so true in what Jesus is saying here in this passage. We weren't trying to exalt ourselves, but perhaps we should have been a little wiser. Perhaps we should have known better. We took the place of honor, and we were asked to move at the wedding feast. We proceeded in disgrace to occupy the last place. And oh, how I wish we had heeded Jesus' instructions in verse 10. When you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, and then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. And you know, everyone before God ought to feel that the lowest place is the proper place for him or for her. Every one of us ought to feel amazed and excited that we've simply been invited to the wedding feast. This feast that he offers where one day as his millennial kingdom begins, Christ will host the marriage supper of the Lamb. You've all been invited. All you must do is RSVP through the Savior, Jesus Christ. Place your faith in him and you will be welcomed in. Not by the status that you've earned, not by the deeds that you've done, not by your high standing in the community, but purely by his grace. Jesus invites you out of love. He offers you, low as you may be, the place of prominence as joint heirs and co-regents with Christ. And none of that is what we deserve. None of us has a claim to the place of honor. We're all just a bunch of nobodies that Jesus has declared to be somebodies because of his love for us. And in the grand scheme of things, when we compare ourselves to Christ, we are nobodies. And yet his rich love toward us shows us that we have value in his sight. And Jesus chose to associate with the nobodies. He has chosen that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and that everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, Jesus flips the table around with his amazing grace by associating with the anonymous. The anonymous, those who were not known, those who were not socially prominent, those who would have been sitting at the end of the table, those who would have been sitting far away. From the host. Jesus tells us, go and sit with them. Go and spend your time among the nobodies. Go to those who don't have societal status. Go to those who can't repay you with a claim in the gathered community. Go and lift others up, Jesus is showing us to do. And friend, if you think you're better than everybody else, like these Pharisees and these lawyers, then you are in for a rude awakening. Honor and blessing in God's kingdom eludes those who think they can earn it. Salvation comes only to the humble. Those who are bloated up with the dropsy of pride will not pass through the narrow gate that leads to eternal life. Only those who leave it all outside and come saying, Here I am, a sinner in need of grace will find their way through. And so I urge you, look to Jesus and ask, am I too arrogant to associate with the anonymous? Jesus has always been God, but he chose to be born in a barn and placed in a feed trough. He spent his days bending down to associate with the anonymous, 
touching lepers, healing widows, and placing children on his knee. And this humble Savior rode a donkey through the gates of Jerusalem and then knelt in front of his disciples to wash their feet. Jesus stooped low. In fact, the only time during his earthly ministry that Jesus chose to elevate himself, it was up to a hill called Calvary, where he took the sins of the whole world and carried out our sorrows on his bent and bloody back. And so I ask you, are you associating with the anonymous? Or are you arrogant? Are there some individuals whose company you wouldn't be caught in? Then follow the example of Jesus. Ditch your arrogance and go to the last place. Find your comfort there where the weak and the lowly and the anonymous nobodies are. Go to the nobodies and show them that God sees them as somebody. This is the command of our Savior. And he will exalt those whose hope is in him at the due time. Associate with the anonymous. That's the second habit of humility from a Savior who stoops low. Habit number three is this. Serve the suffering. Serve the suffering. In verses 12 through 14, Jesus turns his attention to the host of this meal that he's gathered at. He speaks to the one who had invited him. And he gives instructions on who you ought to serve if you're going to host a party like this one that he's hosting now. Now, hosting a dinner party isn't an easy task to pull off. You've got to figure out, first of all, who you're going to invite. Then you've got a fairly good bit of time that you have to invest in cleaning your place up and getting things prepared. It isn't cheap. You have to go out. You've got to buy a lot of extra food. But Jesus said, if you're going to go to all of that trouble, do it not with a temporary reward in mind. Do it with an eternal reward in mind. That's why he says, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. That is, he says, don't just go about your life serving those who can return the favor to you somewhere down the road. Don't just use people to benefit yourself. Instead, he commands this host, and thereby he commands us to serve the suffering. In fact, he mentions a few categories of those who we might classify as suffering there in verse 13. As he says, but when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. Then he gives the real reason for such a gracious invitation. He says, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Friends, we've talked already as we've been through the book of Luke about ultimately storing up treasures where thief cannot steal and moth cannot destroy. Jesus commanded that very thing. Here's just another instance of Jesus talking about eternal investments. Not taking the resources that we have now to invest in others who can pay us back and, and gather for us more acclaim, more notoriety, more popularity, more easy life. No, but taking those things which God has entrusted to us as stewards and, and ambassadors of his grace and using those things to help those who are helpless. 
to bring relief to those who are suffering, to serve a world that is in need. Now, look, Jesus isn't saying that you can't entertain your family and your friends for dinner. Okay, don't cancel Thanksgiving just because we've been through this passage here today. But he is warning us against only using the resources at our disposal to serve those who serve us. And we find that his words here ultimately teach us that the best hospitality is that which is given, not that which is traded. True ministry out of a Christian love serves and gives without a thought of what might come in return. It isn't manipulative. It doesn't serve others only because we think of what we can get out of that action. As Christians, we should serve others out of love of God and love for others. To go Jesus' way, you have to have your focus on eternity, not on the rewards that might be returned back here in a few days. You have to believe that God is the rewarder of those who seek Him as the author of Hebrews, states in Hebrews 11.6. Now there may be blessings that come back to you in this life when you serve the Lord. But often, I will say, there are not going to be any visible rewards here and now. You serve, and no one notices. You you help a needy person, and you get ripped off. And the person never even says thank you. And friends, one test of whether your motives are right in your service for Christ is this question. Are you hurt when you don't get the recognition that you think you deserve for the actions you performed for Christ. If you're only willing to serve those who can pay you back or those who might at later advance your cause or bring extra acclaim to your name, then listen to me. You are using people. You are not loving them. Christ did not come to use people. He came to love them. He gave of his resources so richly. So many things that we could not earn on our own. So much richness in the inheritance that we have as joint heirs of Christ. As we have the opportunity to be co-regents with him. Jesus has given it all. He gave his own life as he went to Calvary's tree. And yet he does so out of love. Jesus shows us that the point of our lives is not that we would climb up all the right ladders of prestige and power, but that we would climb down as often as we can in order to offer compassion and service and love to those who are on the rungs below us. As Jesus has said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The true honor is bestowed by the banquet host True honor comes from the one who invites others in. And when we look at that in a a cosmic reality of where we are headed, of where God is taking us in his grand plan of salvation, true honor will come not from those that you earn the respect of in the community. True honor will come from the one who may one day say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Our motive for sharing must be the the praise of God and not the applause of men. The eternal reward in heaven and not the temporary recognition on earth. Jesus is in essence teaching us here, you can't get your reward twice. 
You can't get your reward only from those who are here, from the service that you render, and then expect to get a reward in heaven as well. He's telling us to give in a way that he gives, to give in a way that is costly, to give in a way that ultimately sacrifices what we have, what is ours, so that others might benefit through the grace that we offer. And this is an eye-opener for us, that there are rewards that even if we are in Christ, we will miss out on if we only serve those who can serve us. And so I ask you, will you look to Jesus and will you ask yourself, am I too selfish to serve the suffering? Because here's the blessed news of the gospel. God was not too selfish to serve the suffering. In fact, as we read in Philippians chapter 2, Paul instructs the church in Philippi, he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, that one that we compare ourselves to if we truly want to be humble. What was the attitude of Christ Jesus? Paul says in verse 6, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, Paul says, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see where all things are headed? Do you see that ultimately one day, everything that has breath will give glory to God through Christ? Do you see that? If so, then I ask you, do you have breath now? Why not prepare those rewards now? Why not prepare for the day of resurrection now? Why not invest in eternal things now? Why not give of what God has given you in this temporary life to advance his kingdom cause now so that we might enjoy the blessed rewards that he has in store for those who live with a love that echoes the mercy in the heart of Christ? That's what we're called to do as the church. My friends, his mercy and his heart is for you. He is jealous for you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your history is, no matter how bad you've been at keeping the checklist of righteousness you've been trying to keep, Christ offers to you life. And so I appeal to you, Come to Jesus and find life. Come to Jesus and find hope. Come to Jesus and be saved. Because this is the heart of our generous Savior who serves the suffering, who associates with the anonymous, 
who helps the helpless. Do you know him? Oh, I hope you do. But if not, he invites you now to come to him and find life. We're going to close with a word of prayer. If that's a decision that you've never made, though, then I'm going to invite you as we finish this prayer, as we enter into a time of invitation, that you just step out in the aisle and you walk down this way, and I will be happy to guide you through what that decision looks like, what the hope is that Christ offers, how you can entrust your life to him. But first, let's pray. God, we thank you for the true example of humility. We thank you for Jesus who didn't consider his deity as a reason to stay aloof for fallen individuals like us. Made himself nothing. Humbled himself to the the point of death, even death on a cross, so that we might be saved. Father, I know that there are many avenues, many streams of our lives where we are oppressed from every side to be selfish, to, to, to be considering ourselves, to be elevating our own causes, to be finding com- comfort for our own lives. But God, teach us through your word not to waste our lives in this way. God, don't let us waste the treasures you've entrusted to us for something that is temporary and fleeting away. God, give us hearts that we might dedicate ourselves anew to you in serving, in giving, in loving the anonymous and the helpless and those who are suffering. Guide us, O Lord, in these ways that we might be faithful ambassadors of the one who has saved us and that we might rejoice forevermore in what you grant us in him. Father, if there there are individuals who are gathered here on this day who have not received your grace, oh God, would you draw them in? Would Would you let them know, O Lord, how sweet your mercy and your grace are? Which has showed them that while they are dead in their trespasses and sins, while they are headed for hell, while they are headed for eternal separation, eternal torment, as those who've violated your will, those who've separated themselves from you by their own actions and deeds, even though they're in that state, your grace is rich, your mercy is new. So, Father, would you draw them to yourself so that they might find life? God, do what only you can do as we share in these final moments of invitation. If there are needs, O oh Lord, that individuals might have in their hearts of rededicating their life to you, of, of committing themselves to truly pursuing the example of Christ or giving their lives to Christ for the first time, I pray, God, you draw in the way that only you can. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.